Thank you very much indeed, everyone. Very warm welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm the director, and I'm delighted to welcome here this morning Liam Fox. And Liam Fox was, as you know, Secretary of State for Trade from 2016 to 2019, those years when the department was being set up and we were debating these issues in enormous uh, depth, and also Secretary of State for Defense from 2010 to 2011, hardly quiet years either. And he is a MP for North Somerset, of course, which he's been since 2010 and been, uh, first became an MP in 1992. Well, he's going to talk to us and indeed has been talking quite a lot this morning on the airwaves about um, his thoughts about the future of this government and about the structure of the civil service. And he's going to talk now, now from the lectern uh, for, for a short bit I, I'm going to fire some questions at him. I know there are a lot of questions from you, and we'll leave good time for that, and we will finish just past 10.30. Dean Fox, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, let me begin by thanking the Institute for Government for giving me the opportunity to speak this morning. You are, as you should be, at the very heart of our debate about how our country and its system of government should evolve and adapt to the historic events unfolding over the next few weeks. As Britain prepares to leave the European Union and to disengage with its administration and institutions, there will clearly need to be changes in the way that the United Kingdom organizes its own governmental structures. New roles and new responsibilities will require new ways of doing business. With a new government in place, with a strong mandate at such a key moment in our history. This is an opportunity to slaughter the sacred cows to which successive governments have too often given a last minute reprieve in order to buy political peace. Of course, not everything will change simply because we're leaving the EU far from it. The United Kingdom will remain a key player in a number of crucial global institutions. We retain our permanent seat at the UN Security Council we will take up our independent seat at the World Trade Organization and we are central participants in the IMF, the World Bank and the OECD. We're also at the heart of NATO, which will be a key institution for the development of foreign and security policy, something I will be talking about in Washington in the coming weeks. Yet while there is a strong element of continuity, there will also be substantial change especially in the dynamics of global trade, economics and security. Britain must be both confident and flexible if we're able to take advantage of this changing picture where old assumptions are continually being challenged, new markets blossoming and the tectonic plates of global influence shifting markedly. These changes and a general move away from concepts of multilateralism present challenges and opportunities for Britain's foreign security, trade and aid policies. So how should we organize ourselves to ensure that we can take full advantage of the freedoms conferred by Brexit while minimizing any new risks which might emerge? Let's begin by understanding the scale of the change itself. This year, China's middle class is expected to number 600 million. And by 2030, only a decade from now, China will have over 220 cities 
with a population greater than one million people. The whole of Europe will have 35. Between now and 2050, Africa, on its own, will represent 54% of world population growth, and it's predicted that there will be 1.1 billion middle-class Africans by 2060, a vast new global market. For the UK, the already thriving economies of South and East Asia, and increasingly Africa, will become more important, especially as their economic development will require the service capabilities that are so prevalent and potentially exportable in our own economy. This major shift not only in global demographics, but the rise of the collective wealth of developing countries will determine where the great economic opportunities of the future will be and where we must be too. And this economic and trade pattern of engagement must also be reflected in our foreign and security policies. Why? Because, as I've often said, trade is not an end in itself, but a means by which we help spread prosperity. That prosperity underpins social cohesion, and social cohesion underpins political stability. Ultimately, it is that political stability which is the building block of collective security. It is a continuum which cannot be broken without unwanted consequences and an understanding of this reality is key to developing the structures that will make a post-Brexit Britain fit for the challenges ahead. Now, Secretary of State for International Trade, as I noticed some of you in front of me this morning will have heard endlessly, <coughs> I regularly pointed out that 57% of Britain's exports are now to outside the EU, compared to only 46% just back in 2006. But also that the IMF estimates that in the next 10 to 15 years, 90% of global economic growth will originate from outside the European Union. Now, that's not to diminish the importance of the EU as a market to the United Kingdom, but to help us understand that we cannot simply afford to identify how much of the current institutional relationships we want to preserve, but instead have to determine what we will need to prosper in a rapidly changing global environment. We cannot allow the practices and the patterns of the past to constrain the opportunities of the future. Now, clearly, there are major implications that emanate from this global explosion of change, and they will form the basis of our political discourse in the coming years. But how should we think about organizing Whitehall itself to deal with these issues? Well, there are three current government departments that will be crucial in the delivery of the global Britain posture post-Brexit. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the Department for International Trade, and the Department for International Development. Now, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where I began my ministerial career, has seen decades of degradation uh, in the UK's overseas capability as one treasury after another has taken advantage of Britain's Eurocentricity to penny-pinch to fund domestic consumption. Unsurprisingly, the selling of global property assets has had a cumulative diminution in Britain's standing abroad with no discernible benefit economically or politically at home. When the coalition government came to power in 2010, having worked as a foreign office minister in John Major's government, I was horrified at how hollowed out I felt the FCO had become. This process must now be put into reverse. 
The Department for International Trade, which I set up three and a half years ago, has developed considerable capability in trade policy and negotiations, but will need to be built up further if we are to undertake simultaneous trade discussions. It's notable, for example, and I noticed again in the interviews I was doing this morning, that a free trade agreement with Japan, which will have to be an early and important priority post-Brexit, has been virtually absent from the public discourse. Despite developing a sophisticated export strategy, the DIT is also too light in its overseas network if we're to be able to properly help British businesses to promote the exports and investment that will be a crucial part of our future national income. A successful trade policy is not simply about trade deals, as too many commentators and politicians seem to believe, but generating income from selling Britain's goods and services abroad. Global Britain cannot be done, I'm afraid, on the cheap, nor can it succeed if it's seen primarily as a Whitehall exercise rather than a global one. It's just worth noting that under our current arrangements, we have more British staff in DFID in Kenya than the Department for International Trade has in the whole African continent from Cairo to Cape Town. And that brings me to the third element of our overseas influence, which is the Department for International Development. Now, there is no doubt from anyone who's worked in this sphere that it is regarded as a hugely, if not the most successful global brand. Just some of us would argue not always a British one, despite the valiant efforts of several secretaries of state. And I was particularly struck at the last Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in London, where a number of African leaders in particular seemed more keen to talk to their DFID counterparts than to their foreign office counterparts. A country can only have one foreign policy, not two. And this is an opportunity to correct this issue without undermining our legal commitment to spend 0.7% of GDP on overseas aid and development, something that is and should be a source of national pride. So how do we reshape Whitehall to institute these changes? Clearly, there are a myriad of potential combinations of current departments, so I'll limit my considerations to only these issues and leave aside issues such as security, justice, immigration, which are also hugely important. Now, you'll all have read over the newspapers and at Christmas a lot of speculation that some government departments might be amalgamated. Now, this may or may not come to pass, but if it is to happen, there are for me four main potential options. Firstly, bringing together the FCO and DFID in a single department. Secondly, bringing FCO and DIT into a single department. Thirdly, bringing DIT and DFID into a single department. And fourthly, a much more complex change where, for example, some of the elements of Bayes were amalgamated with DIT alongside the creation of new departments for energy and environment on one side and agriculture and countryside on the other and a new department for infrastructure effectively implementing regional policy and the current industrial strategy would also be in line with many of the government's priorities. Now there are merits and demerits in my view to each of these ideas. Merging the Foreign Office and DFID, and let's remember as recently as John Major's government they were in the same department, this would satisfy the need for a single foreign policy which would be crucial in navigating the changing global environment 
It would also be possible to combine the two departmental platforms abroad, not simply to seek efficiencies in delivery, although this would be possible in some cases, but to operate a more effective and sometimes greater footprint where we seek greater influence. Britain would still be able to fulfil its obligations in terms of GDP expenditure on development and retain its global reputation as a world leader. Now, inevitably, I think there would be some tension about geographical priorities, but this is exactly the sort of issue that we need to have resolved. And such an arrangement need not be seen by DFID as disadvantageous. Indeed, there could be some synergy in such a relationship. If, for example, uh, a single department were to have two cabinet ministers in the same way that the Treasury have the Chancellor and the Chief Secretary, its influence could be enhanced, as well as having what I would regard as the beneficial side effect of providing a suitable political counterbalance to Treasury in Cabinet. Of course, there would likely be pushback from the vocal and highly well-organised NGOs and charities in the aid sector, but that should not constitute a reason for failing to consider such a natural alignment. Then we come to our second option. Foreign policy and trade are operated from within the same department in a number of countries, but usually much smaller than the UK. In fact, in my uh, leadership bid in 2005, I suggested that we created a department for foreign and trade policy. But the reason that the Department for International Trade under Theresa May was ultimately set up as an independent body was that there was a widespread feeling that when trade policy was operated at the foreign office level, then it would always play second fiddle to diplomatic activity if time and manpower were at a premium. And that's entirely unsurprising, as the primary function of the FCO is the exercise of foreign policy through the diplomatic service. There's also, in such an arrangement, the increased risk of trade being used as a political lever at a time when we need to give predictability, support and reassurance to British businesses to operate in sometimes challenging and difficult political environments. But again, there could be considerable synergy if the department were to be represented by two cabinet ministers. The third option, that of merging trade and international development, also has its attractions. The increased freedoms in tariff policy that Brexit will bring, combined with well-targeted foreign direct investment, could enable developing economies to mature more quickly and provide them with a more predictable means of trading their way out of poverty. This is particularly true in the service sector, where many of the skills that Britain already possesses in spades will be the most needed by those economies seeking to compete fairly and freely in global markets. It would give clarity to our message that we wish to see developing, trading, so developing nations trade their way out of poverty rather than depending permanently on the largesse of more affluent Western nations. It would not, however, deal with the current dislocation of investment or the duplication of sector teams, which is the problem at the DIT Bayes interface. The fourth option would involve more substantial change, and the options are far too numerous to mention here, although a strong case can be made for many of them. My own preferred option, if change is to come in this way, is the first bringing FCO and DFID together, combined with beefing up DIT capability both at home and overseas. This should be combined with the rapid expansion of the current, albeit small, program of overseas apprenticeships run by DIT. 
This would see new opportunities for young people and those wishing to see a new career course to work in and with our overseas networks and to experience for themselves the sort of opportunities that are out there for a genuinely global, open and connected Britain. It should be extended out from DIT to both the FCO and DFID as a matter of priority to create a cadre of young people who will be able to see for themselves how our future needs to be shaped by the era of globalisation rather than an over-dependence on the EU, its structures, its duties and its interests. Now, in each of these scenarios, there will be warnings aplenty that machinery of government changes will divert civil service energy at a time they need to be completing the Brexit settlement. The sublime irony, of course, is that this advice will be coming from many of the very same people who sought to thwart Brexit itself. It's true that the machinery of government changes can be diversionary, but this is also the time for significant internal change to match the scale of the external challenge. With a new government elected, with a strong majority, in a Britain about to abandon some of the institutions to which it has been shackled in the last 40 years, this is no time to give undue weight to traditional self-interest. Of course, as my colleague and friend William Hague pointed out this morning, change for change's sake would be a wholly unjustified diversion, unlikely to produce any more benefits now than similar projects have done in the past. Yet machinery of government changes can only ever be part of the story. We should also take this opportunity to determine whether the current civil service model is appropriate for the tasks ahead. We must ask ourselves whether the current UK civil service has the appropriate structures, culture and skills to maximise our potential or whether change is required and if so, to what degree. Ever since Gladstone's implementation of the Northcote Trevelyan model, the civil service has been intended to be a permanent and politically neutral service where officials administer policies determined by elected politicians. Yet there are worries, not new, that the service remains drawn from too narrow a social base, retains too much of a good all-rounder culture and understands too little about modern management methods. The perception that it is unduly favoured by the honour system, that it has too few technical skills in an ever more technical economy, are regular criticisms. And of course these are nothing new. In the series of government initiatives from the Committee of Lord Fulton in 1968 to Robin Ibb's next steps in 1988, changes have been made or suggested with varying degrees of success. Perhaps the greatest change in recent times has been the advent of special advisers in government departments. From the informal powers such as those of Alan Walters and Margaret Thatcher's government to the formal powers of Jonathan Powell and Alistair Campbell in Tony Blair's government, influence has increased, although I believe in a somewhat haphazard way that has lacked proper transparency. Governments have considered more radical change, including the coalition government under David Cameron, but as Sir Robin Day might have put it, the permanency of the civil service has been more than a match for the here-today, gone-tomorrow politicians. Now, most ministers will give accounts of working with some of the finest, most talented and loyal staff that anyone could ask for, and I can certainly attest to that, not least in the Department for International Trade, which I had the privilege to lead for three years, as you pointed out, Bronwyn. 
Yet most ministers will also have experience of less capable officials, some quite senior. Even more frequent is the complaint from the private sector that the civil service has too little understanding of their culture and processes. Now at DIT, we developed plans to rotate members of our sector teams through their private sector counterparts while offering a reciprocal rotation through a department which had developed technical understanding of trade policy and which could be of great benefit to the private sector in return. And this concept needs to be developed further and resistance to change in both directions overcome. Recently, a number of senior formal civil servants, some in the unelected House of Lords, made clear their passionate opposition to the implementation of the Brexit vote despite the clearly stated aim of the government to do so. It is not difficult to believe that they were simply the tip of the iceberg, which much of which was submerged inside a civil service which often has a deep antipathy to the whole concept of disengaging with the European Union. Those of us who witnessed events at close quarters will never, of course, be able to tell how much of the foot-dragging and institutional inertia was due to the civil servant itself and how much was a result of political instruction from those former senior colleagues of mine who were never able to reconcile themselves with the result of the democratic referendum that they themselves had instituted. Now, some will say Conservatives won the 2019 general election and Brexit will happen, so we can put this episode behind us. I believe it would be a mistake to do so, for while it's not indicative of a dysfunctional civil service per se, it's at least sufficient evidence to show that in some areas of policy, impartiality is at a premium. The case for change, I believe, is now too strong to resist. So, if that's true, where should we look for alternative models? Well, I would rule out at the beginning, moving to a US style, where a huge number of appointments are party political. And I do this for two reasons. The first is that I believe the culture is simply too far removed from that which we have traditionally had in the UK and would amount to revolution, not evolution, which, as a conservative, I reject. The second is a purely practical consideration where the smooth and orderly running of government can be greatly impeded by the pace at which such political appointments can actually be made in practice, an issue which has been particularly marked in the current Trump administration. And it's hard for me to see where any net benefit could occur here from such a change. But the French system has its attractions as something of a hybrid between the American winner-takes-all approach and the non-partisan model on which the Whitehall Civil Service is based. In France, the President and Prime Minister both have the power to appoint some of the more senior positions in the Civil Service, and they also have their own cabinet of personally appointed advisers. In contrast to the US system, only around 500 senior Civil Service positions tend to be forcibly vacated post-election in France allowing the incoming administration to fill sensitive ministries such as finance, foreign affairs, interior and justice without undue disruption across other parts of the system. The Swedish system also has much to commend it. Now, although impartiality 
and meritocracy in terms of appointments to the state administration are written into the constitution in Sweden, ministers have the right to appoint state secretaries, the top officials, into their departments. Even other Westminster-based systems have important differences that we should consider. In Canada, the civil service combines a non-partisan element alongside greater political oversight with the Prime Minister appointing around 70 of the top rank, known there as Deputy Ministers. In Australia, the Prime Minister has the power to appoint and dismiss the equivalent of our permanent secretaries, and ministerial offices are staffed almost exclusively by political appointees who are employed under different legislation from that governing civil servants. All of these ideas for reform we should give serious and urgent consideration to. Our arrangements have generally served as well, but in a much changed environment, it would be foolish to behave as though the relationship between government and civil service is set in stone. The trick will be to keep the best of what we have and update it without introducing unnecessary instability that would threaten the all-important continuity and even more collective memory on which good government is dependent. Now there is another crucial debate to be had which is a separate but connected issue to the ones that I've outlined. That is what the role of any reformed state should be. Are we simply trying to improve the efficiency of delivery of the mechanics of the state or are we willing to contemplate a Britain where the state steps back acting as an empowering agent and allowing the free market to operate effectively. For example, in providing better regional infrastructure with funding and priorities set by government, do we really need an industrial strategy to determine where and what sort of subsequent development takes place, rather than leaving it to the private sector with both national and international investors? Few of you will be surprised to know that I instinctively favour the latter approach. But it's a debate that we must have. And we now have a political environment where we are more able to contemplate the changes we may need to deliver on the promises that we have made to provide greater prosperity to all parts of the UK. Now we can all be certain today that we will leave the European Union on the 31st of January. That debate is over. The question now is how we position our country for the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. A crucial part of that debate is how we shape the structure of our government itself and how we update our civil service in response. We need to ensure that we speak with a clear voice on the issues that really matter, with a single foreign policy and a strong overseas network to further our diplomatic aims and take advantage of the opportunities that will come with changing patterns of global trade. We need Whitehall structures designed for our post-EU future and a civil service that is able and willing to wean itself quickly away from two generations of Eurocentricity and dependence. On top of all this, we need clarity about the intended role of the state itself in a challenging and competitive world. Some will see these as great challenges. Some of us see them as golden opportunities. Thank you. Thank you.
Catherine Vox, uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, fascinating. Let me, let me ask you this thing to start off with. We've got this new government, um, big majority. It wants to get Brexit done, a trade deal with the EU. Um, wants all kinds of other things to do, really quite, uh, very ambitious in terms of investment, of levelling up Britain. Why are you and others, uh, close to the Prime Minister, devoting so much time and energy to talking about changing the very structure of Whitehall? Why does that matter? Because we've had a huge debate about what Brexit means inside Britain. We've had a debate in the election about our domestic agenda. There's not been nearly so much focus on what's called Global Britain and the Global Britain agenda. And I think that if we're serious about that, if a big part of the reason for leaving the EU is to develop a more global Britain posture, then we need to think about how we organise that and how we shape government for that. And to some extent, how we fund government. There's been very little debate about, um, about the funding of that. Um, you look, for example, at the discrepancies in funding. Um, I'm not saying that the, the DFID, for example, is overfunded. That's, a, that's set in law. But about £14 billion in terms of DFID spending compared to just £1 billion that we spend on our entire diplomatic uh, network worldwide. <laughs> now, if you want to get a global footprint, if you want to get a global voice, as I said, you can't get it on the cheap. And if you want to be pushing Britain's businesses and exports, which we need to generate more income for the country, if we want to have all this domestic investment, mm. you need to make sure we've got the sufficient capability to do that. All right, so why not move the money around? And indeed, the Foreign Office budget has been cut uh, uh, over the years and DFID, driven by the commitment to spend 0.7% of GDP, has gone up and up. But when you said it's set in law, what DFID gets, it's not quite, it's, it's set in law that the UK spends 0.7%. Actually, over the past few years, a lot of that 0.7% has been shared out over other departments, not just going to DFID. So why, why not take more money off DFID and give it to the FCO? Well, I think, I think you therefore bring them together. Um, I cited the... Um, uh, when Linda Chalker was the mm. minister in charge of our uh, aid and development, uh, she sat in the House of Lords. I answered for that in the House of Commons in John Major's government when they had the subsequent split um, where DFID was created. Now, um, looking back now, I think that there was a better argument for that than I maybe perceived at the time, and we did, we did need to be concentrating a lot on that development. That pattern has changed. A lot of those African countries that were very poor have themselves develop to a great degree and see themselves much more as equal partners in terms of the future relationship that we have uh, economically. That brings us into where trade, I think, and, and development uh, collide, or at least overlap. Um, and I think that and foreign policy, you know, on a Venn diagram, have a substantially greater central part, perhaps, than they did before. So I think trying to bring our institutional arrangements into line with what the changes have been in the, the, the the real international environment makes sense. Um, and it's something we should certainly consider. And to have a knee-jerk reaction and say, we're not going to do that, we're going to keep things exactly as they are now, seems to me not to make much sense. So you're saying, I mean, that aid policy needs to be much more closely coordinated with our foreign policy, our trade policy. As you said, you don't want two foreign policies out there. Well, take, take, a, take a real example. Take, take climate change, for example. One of the ways in which we can help um, developing mm. countries is to mm. help them get access to clean energy generation. Um, about a third of the uh, increased CO2 generation last year came from developing countries using coal um, as a means of generating power. Our foreign policy aim um, in terms of climate change is very clear and set out across government. Um, 
yet the finance for a lot of that sits somewhere else. It seems to me to bring, to make mm. sense to bring the two together so they're more closely aligned. Mm. I, I'm interested in this. I mean, you're not saying that DFID is not good at what it does. Um, you're you're contrary, talking about coordination. I'm saying it's very yeah. good at what it does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what it will be asked to do will be different in future from what it's done mm -hmm. in the past, and I think aligning it better. Um, I mean, the, the point I was making about, about trade, trade and development policy is also true, and you mm -hmm. can make a strong case that if we were able to encourage, for example, British companies to invest in the capabilities that developing countries have to add value to their mm -hmm. primary produce, and then we use our freedom post-Brexit to alter tariff policies, then we would be able to, to augment what we do already. All right, um, so, you, so you want to bring them closer together. I mean, I'm pushing on this point because it's, it's, it's as you know, uh, um, an old debate about uh, how much money to give to DFID and indeed what it does with it and the independent uh, commission on, on uh, aid impact which reports to Commons Committee and co Commons Committees themselves for years gave DFID a very hard time and said it wasn't very effective in what it did, it backed the wrong people, uh, the leaders it was backing turned corrupt, it shoveled out loads of money through the EU and World Bank and so on. Plus, three, four years, it stopped saying that uh, and said, look, it is very good at what it, it does. Um, uh, but now, because money's uh, being shared out of other departments, we're worried that our aid policy is becoming subsumed in our foreign policy. And yet, that, that's what you're actually saying is, is necessary at this point. I think what DFID will be asked to do in the future is different from what it has done in the mm. past. I think we need to look ahead. And I think bringing the alignment of the platforms overseas also mm. is helpful. Now, there are those who take the traditional view that's, well, if you've got all these platforms, let's cut the different ones um, uh, and save money. Actually, I can see arguments for having a greater footprint mm. um, for Britain if we want greater influence. Um, and to seeing a single one government platform increased. Now, that's been actually happening uh, in practice, but I would like to see that um, made more uh, an explicit government policy. Um, and, I mean, does, is, is there a point at which our foreign policy and our trade policy become the same, the same thing? How, how do we distinguish them? Well, Where do we want to? In, in, tra in, in trade policy, we need, to, we need to increase Britain's exports. We've been fed a false choice for many years that uh, economically to balance our budget we need to either raise taxes or cut spending. In fact, there's a third option which is to raise our income. Over recent years we've seen a big increase in Britain's exports um, uh, and that's according to the uh, IEA. Are we allowed to talk about them here? Yes, you are. <laughs> um, I estimate that the increase in our exports in recent years was adding something like 10 billion mm -hmm. to the Treasury's coffers. Now that's what we need to do. DIT's identified, and Crawford there sitting in the front will correct me if my numbers are now wrong, but we've identified something like 400,000 British businesses that could be exporting who are not uh, because they're similar to other businesses that already do so. We need to encourage them. That's a lot of missed income for the UK and missed revenue for the Treasury, um, which is out there. So if we're able to provide stability, predictability and support for those businesses, we might have a chance of accessing that income. Um, that means that that's why ultimately my decision would be to keep trade and foreign policy separate because trade does depend on that predictability um, over time and can't be used as a tool you switch on and off um, as a foreign policy lever. I notice incidentally you don't mention your old department, the Ministry of Defence. Now obviously you're not planning in your scheme to merge it with anything else but it's surely part of delivering the global Britain posture that you talk about. It is a huge part and I'll be talking quite a lot about that when I'm um, talking about NATO in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, uh, it does need to, where there is an overlap uh, with 
trade, for example, in defence exports, which is one of our biggest exports, there clearly needs to be good, a good working relationship. But I don't think you can bring trade and defence in any alignment other than a practical and voluntary working. Um, in terms of the MOD, uh, what it does need is good internal cost control mechanisms, um, some of which were instituted in 2010 and seem to have fallen by the wayside a little. Well, what's gone wrong? That uh, Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's uh, advisers, uh, made a particular point as saying, um, uh, and procurement, uh, which has been a target of the Public Accounts Committee for a long time, but uh, anyway, anyway, this is in his sights, and you're saying it should be. You're kind of intruding in private grief here. Um, but, um, very private. So, when we, so when we came to office in 2010, if you remember, yeah. the MOD faced something like a £39 billion projected overspend across the decade. Now, we had to eliminate that as well as making our contribution to deficit reduction, which was very hard, very painful. But we brought in a lot of mechanisms to do so, one of which was called the Major Projects Board. Now, at the time, the top 10 procurement, top 20 procurement projects accounted for 90% of the department's spending um, in that area. <coughs> there was no mechanism for any individual project to be determined if it was over budget or over schedule. So we brought in a major projects board in which all of the major projects had to be signed off by the accounting officer, the PermSec, every six months that they were still on budget and they were still um, on schedule. And miraculously, within 18 months, none of them were at that point projected over budget or over schedule. I won't say which defence subject it was, but one of my successes, I said, do you still chair the major projects board? To which the answer was, what is the Major Projects Board? And quietly and surreptitiously it seems that one of those controls that we had brought in over the process to stop a bow wave developing in defence spending either wasn't operating or no longer existed. Um, we need to institute proper controls over spending programmes that are very rigorous and produce high levels of accountability. Well, we're still on the Whitehall questions. Let me ask you about what you've got. You accused uh, parts of the civil service of having a deep antipathy to Brexit and say so people like you would never know how much of, of this was uh, encouraged by Remain ministers and how much was in the, in the civil service. But don't we have the perfect experiment now? We had, um, under Theresa May, we had a cabinet that was very divided on this. We had a Conservative Party and the Parliament was very divided on this. And a civil service, as they were describing it, that was having to scope out perpetually parallel visions of the future which were very different. Now we've got Johnson government, the Remain ministers have gone, um, and the civil service seems um, uh, and describes itself as being uh, you know, fully charged, uh, uh, very energetically working to deliver what the government clearly is saying. So their retort uh, from some of them would be, no, it was the politicians. Yes, but when you have director generals who are part of a government with a clear promise to deliver on the referendum result, taking part in the People's March. I think you've got a very clear question about impartiality at that point. Uh, we know that was the case. Um, you're right, it should be settled now. The, the, the can, there was always hope in, in Europe and, and in parts of the UK that if we made Brexit difficult enough, maybe it would never happen. That's no longer a question. Um, that, that debate is completely settled. Um, hopefully now we can move on to uh, to where we go. My my 
Grouse is not really with that element itself, mm. other than what it tells us about potential impartiality in, in the service. Um, and I think that I would like to see us have greater control and we say, oh, we can't possibly contemplate that, but yet it works mm. in France and Sweden and Canada and Australia where they have a hybrid mix. They don't go all the way to the US system. Why should we not be considering that here? And this idea that it's some sort of heresy to consider reform uh, by bringing in some, some mm. political appointments into the civil service seems to me uh, to, to lack intellectual rigor. And so, um, do you have a number? Do you have? You've given us a whole uh, menu of other countries and uh, different different hybrids, as you said. Number of uh, political advisors you like? I would like to see, um, for example, I'm, I'm quite attracted by um, that uh, the Australian system, where ministerial offices, private offices, mm. um, are actually manned by by political appointees, whereas the rest of the civil service operates in the way that we have. Mm. traditionally accepted it in the UK. Talking to my colleagues in Australia, they think that works very effectively. It also is governed much more transparently than the appointment of special advisors which we have at this present time. And I think codifying it has its attractions in terms of, of transparency. Let me ask you um, briskly, about because uh, I want to come to questions, about some of the trade issues facing us. Does it matter if there isn't a trade deal with the EU by the end of the year? Well, it's preferable to get one. Um, the question is, is it possible to get one? That was going to be your next question, I imagine, because um, it was the question I was asked about 17 times this morning. Um, it should be. It should be possible. Technically, um, it's, it's clear. We can't have frictionless trade with the EU if we're outside the single market. There will have to be some friction, i.e. in non-tariff barriers. How much of that are we willing to contemplate for the freedom we might want elsewhere? in terms of our trade policy. Um, and, but I think, I think the wider debate is a, is, a, is a much more profound one here, and I think this is the territory we're going into, which is that the EU has a different view of the regulation of global trade than most of the rest of the world has. And by that I mean that the EU has a concept of harmonization, of uh, uh, codification mm. in law, uh, about a whole range of issues uh, that are required in trade. One of the tensions between the US and the EU has been that the US has said, we're not going to implement um, some of your rules in able to trade with as little friction as possible. We're not going to import EU labor law. We're not going to import EU environmental law uh, into, our, into our domestic law simply to trade with you. And what came to be very apparent at the World Trade Organization uh, ministerial meeting, the last one that was held in Buenos Aires, was that the EU still sticks very much to this harmonization view which others regard as an anti-efficiency mechanism. They want equivalence. In other words, we have different regulatory systems that produce much the same outcome. And regulatory-based equivalence uh, versus harmonization is very much where I think that global debate is. And I think that's exactly where Britain and the EU will find themselves in the coming year. Do you think the US is right to have um uh, stall the appointments to the WTO panel in the way that it has uh, and, and renders possibly making the WTO ineffective? I have a lot of sympathy with the basic complaint uh, that the US has about the WTO, that it has gone into areas which previously were not recognized as its competence, uh, creating um, precedent in that. I think we should be sitting down 
trying to encourage the US to stay in and at the same time using our independent influence at the WTO to be able to create um, a, an appellate body that, that doesn't stray beyond that and that keeps us within the realms of the voluntary uh, agreements that WTO was based yeah. upon. That, that, that's, that's a starter position. I think we do need to think about WTO if we're serious about a rules-based system, particularly one that constrains China and in the areas where it hasn't worked very well um, in determining what's private sector and what's uh, state sector, that the lack of clarity, the lack of uh, transparency in that, um, where it lacks teeth uh, in terms of implementation, all these are areas that do need to be considered because the US, frankly and understandably, will not want to be uh, giving support to an organization which it believes is, is allowing China to be able to undertake a whole range of practices from state subsidy to dumping to IP theft, um, but still able to mm -hmm. operate under the WTO rules. So there's a big challenge. I, I think that's also an opportunity for the UK, where we have a lot of credibility and influence um, as a very uh, uh, free market, but also rule-obeying nation. Mm -hmm. So I think our influence could be quite profound there. You've talked a lot over the years, I mean, not, not just this week, about um, relations with the US, which you put a lot of um, uh, weight on for Britain, uh, both in foreign policy and in trade. So let me ask you I mean, um, some particulars about it. Should we deal with Huawei? Should we pursue commercial contracts with them? The US doesn't want us to. We do. What do we do? So there are a number of conflicting issues that the government has to resolve there. Uh, one is clearly we want to continue um, trading access with the world's second biggest economy. The particular Chinese problem is the, um, the Chinese law uh, that requires them, if, re if ordered by the state, to take part in security operations for the state. And I think that that provides all Western countries with pause for thought. If you're dealing with a company that can be ordered by its government to carry out espionage on their behalf effectively, where does that leave you in terms of dealing with them? The argument that the UK has put forward is that, particularly in the issue of 5G, the UK can, in non-core elements of that 5G program, incorporate some Huawei technology. The US, of course, as you know, disputes that. It seems to be that the answer to this is that we, we take Huawei out of the equation and we determine what do we absolutely need to put in place to guarantee the security of our critical national infrastructure. And then if any country fails to meet that criterion, they get excluded. I think to begin with Huawei or begin with China is rather putting the cart before the horse. We should begin with what we need to secure the security of those issues and then operate that, uh, that policy objectively. President Trump didn't tell Boris Johnson about uh, the assassination of the uh, Iranian general in advance. Does that matter? Well, I think that if you want to get cooperation, particularly at the level of closeness of five eyes, uh, the more that we're all informed um, of what one another um, might be doing in advance, the better. You might even be pitching for a, a job at the Foreign Office at that rate. Um, <laughs> Let me ask so you just, just really, really, really <laughs> finally um, about the, um, uh, the, the union uh, of the UK and what Brexit might do to that. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of Northern Ireland, despite the noisiness of the Scottish independence um, debate that you're very familiar with that. What, what do you think 
um, this government ought to do if it wants to hold the union together? Well, we want to get, we want to get a good um, agreement with the European Union um, that minimises any checks. It is impossible to have, as I said earlier, it's impossible to have frictionless trade with the EU if you're outside the single market. That is a mm -hmm. given. We've said we will be outside the single market mm -hmm. as, part, as a part of our manifesto. Um, therefore, there will have to be some form of checks. The question is whether you can use um, uh, different methods, including development of new technology, to minimize any impact. We would want to do that uh, for the cost to business, in any case, in terms of our um, business uh, interface with the EU. Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland would fall into that. Um, uh, I'm very keen that we show to the people of Northern Ireland that being part of the United Kingdom is still hugely to their benefit. But I also think that we've maybe missed a trick. I think we should be showing the Republic of Ireland that we will be their closest friend post-Brexit and that there's enormous potential um, for synergy between us. I, I, I've often thought, and you can say as for you know, someone who's like many parts of the United Kingdom, many people in the United Kingdom got family from different parts of it. I've often thought that we should be working to show the Irish Republic that we are their natural partner in, in many of the ventures that will be in our mutual interests. And, and rather than always talking about the difficulties we have in Irish policy, I think we should be spending a lot more time talking about the opportunities that we will have to be Ireland's best friend on the other side of 31st of January. Would you like a job back in government? Well, my bank manager would. Um, uh, there are advantages to being inside government and outside government. Ultimately, you know the response I'm going to give you, which is, is whatever personnel is a choice for the Prime Minister. For most of us, if we were offered a way of, of serving what we believe was the national interest, consistent with what we believe politically, um, mm. then most people would say yes, as well you know. Thanks very much indeed. Let's have some questions. We'll go to just after half past, as I said. Um, right, here on the aisle, and then I'll come around and um, if there's someone next door. Dr. Fox, uh, Phil Hogan is in the States talking to their trade representative right now. One of the issues that's already emerged is the American desire to sell food and agricultural products into Europe. We want to get a deal with the US during the course of this year, apparently, according to the government. But how can we do that if, um, as Michael Gove has said, we are not going to lower any of our food standards or our animal welfare standards, and we have these public concerns about such things as GMOs, which may not be scientific, but are certainly deep in public consciousness. Thank you very much. Would you like to say who you are, for the record? Um, I, I, I do. I'm a freelance journalist, Ivo Dorney, working yep. for various publications. Live stream as well, who can only see the top of your head. I go. Thank you. So, I think it's a very key question. Um, I think that one of the reasons that the political debate has been caught in such a narrow place is uh, a sort of accepted belief that trading policy is all about FTAs, about free trade agreements. A great deal of what needs to be done is based on regulatory access. Now, to give you a tiny example, um, at DIT, we had an issue with the Scottish Institute for Chartered Accountants, I think I'm right in recalling. And their question was about getting access to the United States because of a lack of recognition of professional qualifications. 
That was largely an issue that occurred at the state level rather than the federal level. And when we were able to sort that out, we were able to get a much improved market access for that one bit of our service sector. And a lot of what we will need to do with the United States will be at a regulatory level, particularly in services which will occur with states rather than the federal government. And remember, four US states would be in the G20 if they were independent. In fact, six would be in the G22 if there was such a thing. And that gives you an idea of the scale of the markets that we're talking about for market access. It's long been uh, an issue whether in uh, a classic FTA with the United States, would we want, as the USTR have indicated, take the time to develop a new gold standard FTA that does a whole range of liberalization, understanding the very points you make, that there will be political resistance to some of the American asks as there will be American resistance to some of our asks? Or do we go for uh, a relatively simple uh, agreement that can then be built on incrementally over time? I think the answer will be sort of a combination. I think that there will be, need to be an organic uh, improvement in trade access. We are very much focused on the service sector. America is very, especially the current administration, focused on both uh, finished manufactured goods and agriculture. So I think you can see where the problems might arise um, in that. So I think that, that we will need to look at uh, the wider issues. DIT actually has a unit within it whose responsibility is to develop the expertise of understanding market access restrictions at the US state level, where a great amount of UK-US trade is locked away uh, because of that. Uh, and I think it's key that we do that. And I was trying to say to Nick Robinson this morning, uh, and before I went on the um, yeah, some of you may or may not know, we have a little chats before you do the Today programme about, about what we might discuss. And I said, you've got to get away from talking about trade between us as simply being about FTAs. There's quite a lot of academic stuff, particularly if you look at some of the Australian work, that suggests that free trade agreements as such may be losing their global impact because they're losing their comparative advantage because of the number of them that currently exist. And market access arrangements that are uh, non-tariff barriers are a much more um, uh, productive way of dealing with business. It's interesting that the OECD says that back in 2010, the G20 countries were operating 300 non-tariff barriers to trade. Following the end of the financial crisis, by 2015, they were operating 1,200 non-tariff barriers to trade. That gives you an idea of where value is being locked away in the global economy, and it also, at the same time, tells you how you need to unlock it. And that won't be done by classic free trade agreements. It will done, be done by market access, by mutual recognition agreements, and, and so on. So it's a complex picture. And as I used to say in, in um, MOD, um, we have a huge toolbox at our disposal. And FTAs are only one of those tools. But I'm afraid that the debate in Britain has become very fixated upon that one tool um, and not upon the other uh, levers that we have. I'm sorry that's a long answer, but it was probably the most crucial question. And it's, it, it's something that we must give much greater debate to and much greater consideration to. What, what in the complex global economy are the different levers that we need to be able to pull? Um, and I think it's, a, it's much more an organic process of change than it used to be even when WTO was established.
All right, I'm going to try and get another batch in quickly if people can try and take their, uh, keep their question short uh, on the aisle and I'll take two at once uh, on the aisle there and, and here. Uh, at the back first and then, and then oh, you. Hi, it's uh, Joe Mays from Bloomberg. The UK Trade Policy Observatory and internal impact assessments at the DIT say the harm to UK-EU trade from Brexit will outweigh the benefits of new trade with non-EU countries. Are those assessments wrong? Well, they're based on a set of assumptions um, that I think are too pessimistic. Um, and I think it fails to take into account the fact that I mentioned that according to the IMF, 90% of global economic growth will occur outside Europe in the next 10 to 15 years. Of course, it depends what uh, assumptions you make about how open that trade will be to the United Kingdom, which goes back to the very question we were answering. Uh, what are the levers that we have that we can use to maximise our access. I'll give you a tiny practical example of that. It wouldn't be taken into account by any of those models. Um, uh, we identified with our DIT team in China uh, a huge market restriction for Northern Ireland dairy. And it, you were able to import Irish Republic milk to China. It was an approved product. You could import Northern Ireland milk to China it was an approved product, but you couldn't use Northern Ireland milk in goods, dairy goods produced in Northern Ireland, yogurt or cheese, for example. Um, identifying that and removing it was worth a quarter of a billion pounds to the Northern Ireland dairy industry. That wasn't taking into account any of those FTAs or any of those models that would be looked at. It was about understanding market access uh, barriers. And that's what we have to work at, because there are lots and lots of those examples out there. Uh, and I'm afraid, I think a lot of those uh, studies were too narrow, made too pessimistic assumptions uh, for what is possible, because they looked at too few levers. Not, that one's not going to end there. Um, uh, right here on the aisle, and I'm going to try and get a few more in. Hello, Lucia Slater, economist at DIT. Um, I was wondering, what do you think are the key future trends in global trade and how are we best prepared to deal with them? For, for Britain, one, one minute. Um, for Britain, yeah. For, for Britain, um, it's clearly the demand for global services. Um, a lot of those countries who have now gone from being very poor to maturing economies are going to need the sort of services that we have. If you look at, um, and see, where did I see Charles? Is it there? former Lord Mayor of London, if you look at what we export, and people won't necessarily understand this or know this, but our educational exports, which were worth, last time I looked, about 17.7 billion for the UK, compared to 14.3 billion for the City of London's insurance exports. Um, what we sell abroad um, is not necessarily what people think we might sell. But if we're looking at both those insurance services and our educational services, the ability to raise skills, you can see where we're very, very well placed. Uh, one of the biggest problems in the global economy is that liberalization of services has not continued at the same pace as liberalization in goods. And getting a global agreement on liberalization of services is probably the biggest boost, not just to the UK, but to the United States and Japan, the three biggest services exporters. Were we able to open up the global market for services, we would be extraordinarily well placed uh, to take advantage of it. So that, that needs to be a priority because I think that adds greatest value to the UK economy. Um, one of the frustrations, I think it's fair to say, is the um, American government's uh, emphasis on manufactured goods rather than services. Um, 
probably loads to tell you the story about it. Sque- but, squeeze Bob, it. But the American trade rep who said to me one day, well, Liam, he's a great friend of mine, Bob Lighthouse, he said, you know, Liam, services are just too difficult to measure. Uh, and and I, said to him, I said to him, in which case, I guess your law film doesn't send out any bills. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze in two more, and I real apologies to everyone I can't get. Um, uh, sorry, here in the front and over there, and uh, apologies. Hi, uh, Emilio from Politico. You talked about um, the IT needing to be boosted so that it can negotiate trade deals simultaneously. Can you give us a, a picture of what, what that would look like, how big it would be, what kind of staff numbers, etc.? Well, the, we have to... Um, we have to ensure that we're not overstretching ourselves. And we've done the public consultation already um, for the US, for Australia, for New Zealand, and for CPTPP. Most countries, um, and again, I defer to Crawford sitting on your left, most countries, including the US, would regard that um, more than three <coughs> was a tall order at any one time. We'll have to prioritize. Uh, for me, one of the questions has always been, where, where does Japan sit in that? Um, we know with Japan roughly what it is we want. Um, Japan didn't want replication of the European Economic Partnership Agreement with Britain, largely because they didn't like the, the data uh, elements within it and would like an agreement that was without those. Well, so would we. And we can see the pathway to getting that. Um, the question is how, how quickly would we want to put that in, in, in the list of priorities? And also, are we doing them sequentially? Um, do we do the quickest ones first or do we do them in parallel? Now, there'll be a strong view in Whitehall, to go back to my earlier point, that says, let's do the EU one first. And that's very attractive for those who want to keep as much of the EU relationship as possible. My view is let's not do them sequentially. Let's do at least some of them in parallel. It increases our leverage across each of them. I can um, ask you a lot about that, but I'm not really going to squeeze in the, 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 the last one. Thank you. Julie Leonard from PwC. What does this all mean for regional economic uh, growth, and particularly the disparity between the South and the North? And I'm curious, particularly with the machinery of government changes, um, devolved authorities, administrations, um, and uh, how might DIT uh, try to help fill that gap? It's, uh, well, I think it's, it's more than, it goes well beyond DIT. Um, and if I may say, it's not just between the South and the North, it's the South and the regions. Um, as a Southwest MP, let me tell you, uh, that we regard ourselves as being every single bit as important as the northern powerhouse or anything else, and we need to get investment down to the southwest. But let, let me use that as a tiny example. Um, we're seeing, where, where I am, so my constituency is not far south of Bristol, um, we're seeing development move, overspilled development from Bristol, not move up the M5 corridor or down the M5 corridor, but west across the M4 to South Wales. Why? Why? because there is a more ready availability of, of skills, for example. What, what the, in my view, what the state needs to do, what the central government needs to do, is to provide the investment in the capabilities required. We've taken 20 years, where I live in the southwest, to get 1.3 miles of extra track to get a branch line to one of our biggest and most important towns. Central government needs to provide the capital to enable that investment to come. We need an evening up of the infrastructure between what we get in London and the southeast and the spending that we have there per capita and what we need in the rest of the country. We saw at DIT a huge willingness of countries like um, Qatar to invest in places like Birmingham, but they were much happier to do it once they saw that we were going to go ahead with infrastructure improvements 
um, there. So I think where we provide the investment, the private sector will come in behind. But as long as we get the things right, and I think the, 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 the short answer to your question, if I could say, is, is that we, we ask our investors to Britain, why do you put money in the UK? They will say, system of law, we know that. But they will say, skills, skills and labour law, regulatory environment, taxation environment. The government gets those right. The private sector will come in uh, and take advantage of them. Both our domestic private sector and those from overseas uh, will invest. Uh, the problem has been an overemphasis in terms of public investment in London and the South East and an underinvestment. Bristol, back to that point, is one of only two cities out London, outside London that's a net contributor to the UK economy. Investment in transport where we live compared to what London gets is deplorable. It's gone on too long and that needs to come to an end. We've got to ensure that our regional economies get their share of infrastructure spending because the op economic opportunities and investment will follow. We are going to have to stop there. Thank you very much for your questions and thank you for the, those uh, who, asked, um, who are asking questions and I couldn't get you in uh, next time. Um, thank you very much indeed for coming and please join me in thanking Liam Fox. Thank you.